Well, I want to say hi to everyone here on campus, uh, those joining us online. Great uh, to have you with us today. Uh, if you're new with us, um, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Orangewood. I'm really glad uh, you're here with us today. Uh, we are in a sermon series called Undeniable Witness. And most of the encounters with Jesus we're looking at are encounters that happened after Jesus's resurrection. But today's a little different. Uh, this encounter we find ourselves in is actually one that happened during Jesus's earthly ministry. And the reason we're looking at it today is because it involves a mother's request. Uh, it involves a mother's heart. And uh, I want to say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the room, those also online. This is a day uh, to celebrate and to honor uh, moms for all the, the beauty and the wonderful things they bring to our life, but also understanding as we honor our moms that uh, today has a complicated history. Uh, at the previous church I served at, uh, we had a very dear friend of, of ours who confided in us and said Mother's Day was a very, very hard day for her to come to church. She, she shared with us, confided in us, uh, that she had longed to become a mother, but was unable to carry a baby full term. Mother's Day for her brought incredible heartbreak, incredible heartache. Uh, others of you, Mother's Day is hard because you lost your mom this past year. Others, uh, Mother's Day is hard because you just never had the relationship with your mom that you had hoped for. And so you struggle to celebrate. Today is a mixture of emotions that we understand are in the room. But we want to not miss this moment, an opportunity to honor and recognize uh, our moms and all the great things you bring to our life. Thank you. Our passage today gets at the glimpse of a mother's heart for her kids. This passage uh, in, in your Bible, maybe the, the heading right above it, it says a, a mother's request. And what we see uh, is this mother wants for her children, what she wants for her children, at least these two boys in this passage, she wants a great life for them, a great life. How do we get a great life? You know, we, we hear a lot today uh, about how to become great, how, how to have a great life. There, there's this phrase that sums it up in the, in sports. When, when you make it to the top, you, you will simply be called the goat, the, the greatest of all time. Uh, this phrase ha has been given to Tom Brady, the football quarterback. As he is simply known as the goat. If you know anything about hockey, uh, Wayne Gretzky is called the great one, the great one. But it's not just sports. You and I, we, we are offered uh, products all the time that are promising us this, this great life. If you just had this product, you would know a great life. Um, you know, Rachel and I uh, had just gotten married, so it, it had to have been only a couple months uh, at this point. And um, I, I woke up in the middle of the night. I, I was having trouble sleeping. I couldn't go back to sleep. So I made my way to the living room and turned on the TV, but it was 4 a.m. and this was 13 years ago. So there wasn't a lot on TV uh, at 4 a.m. in the morning, 13 years ago, but there was one thing that was definitely on. If you woke up in the middle of the night and turned on your TV at 4 a.m. 13 years ago, it was infomercials. 
And I began watching and, and, and hearing the promise of a great life being offered me. And I got sucked in to an hour long presentation on the Jack LaLanne juicer. Maybe you remember the Jack LaLanne juicer, all, all the health benefits it offers, all, all the various uh, options that this would give you, how it would change your life if you would purchase it. And, and if you acted in the next 15 minutes, they would throw in the stainless steel version for free. What, what a deal. So there I was at 4.45 in the morning purchasing a Jack Lane juicer for our family. Now, you have to remember, Rachel and I have only been married for a couple months at, at this time. So she's probably thinking, what did I get myself into? Is, is, is he going to be buying things all the time impulsively like this? Uh, she had to have been, and she's probably still wondering, what did I get myself into? But, um, and today as I preach... That Jack Lane juicer, I do not know what junkyard all those various parts are in right now. Do you want a great life? Do you want a great life? How do you become great? Well, three things we see from our passage. First, the upside down nature of a great life. Second, the seat that hinders us from a great life. And finally, the way to a great life. Uh, let's look first at the upside down nature of a great life. And we see it in verse 26. Jesus is speaking to us this morning. He, he said this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Uh, Jesus is approached by this, this mother. We learn this is the mother of James and John. And, and Jesus tells us the nature of, of the great life and, and what it's about. And, he, and, he, and he's asking us this morning, are you listening? Are, are, are you listening? Are you, are you leaning in to hear? You want to be great? Be a servant. It, it might sound countercultural to us today, but, but those sitting there as Jesus shared this in the first century, uh, they would have been knocked out of their lawn chairs as they gathered around uh, for two reasons. First, in the, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, a servant and a slave were the two lowest positions that anyone could have in the Jewish community. That's one reason. The second, you have to remember that the, the Roman Empire controlled all the known world at this time, and their ideologies were seeping into the cultural framework of the Jewish identity. In the Roman world, in the Roman Empire, Pride was exalted as a virtue and humility was looked at as, as a weakness, as, as something to be away from, as something to despise. In our world today, uh, we would not have the smallest inkling of humility as a virtue and a value in our lives if it wasn't for this first century rabbi who claimed to be God and died on a cross. John Dixon uh, is a university professor. He's taught at Oxford. Uh, he wrote a book called Humilitas, and he studies the history of humility through the centuries and the upside down nature to a great life. And he writes this, humility came to be valued in Western culture 
as a consequence of Christianity's dismantling of the all-pervasive honor-shame paradigm of the ancient world. Today, it doesn't matter what your religious views are. Christian, atheist, Jedi Knight, that's a thing. If you were raised in the West, you're likely to think that honor-seeking is more questionable and lowering yourself for the good of others is ethically beautiful. That is the influence of a story whose impact can be felt regardless of whether its details are believed. The story about greatness that was willingly went to a cross. Put another way, while we certainly don't need to follow Christ to appreciate humility or to be humble, it is unlikely that any of us would aspire to that virtue were it not for the historical impact of his crucifixion on art, literature, ethics, law, and philosophy. Our culture remains cruciform long after it stopped being Christian. Dixon is saying, we wouldn't have the concept of humility, this upside down nature to life. We wouldn't have that concept if it wasn't for a first century rabbi who claimed to be God and died on the cross. But even in a world where we have humility still around us, uh, there is still very much uh, opposition today to humility that we find in our modern world, what we call pride, what the apostle Paul called as he wrote to the people in Philippians, vain glory. Uh, here, here we hear from the author, John Stott. He put it this way. A chorus of many voices is chanting in unison, in unison today, that I must at all costs love myself. Now, while many still tout the need for self-esteem, many psychologists have found that we are doing quite fine loving Ourselves. In fact, uh, Thomas Gilvick, who is a professor of psychology from Cornell University, he and his other colleagues did um, some surveys with graduating high school students, and they found that 70% of these graduating seniors thought that they were, quote, above average in their leadership ability. 70%. Only 2% thought that they were below average. In terms of ability to get along with others, all the students thought that they were above average. 60% said that they were in the top 10% and 25% thought they were in the top 1% to get along with other people. We are not hurting in our views of self, but Jesus reminds us that is not how you become great. You must be a servant. There are two ways this passage has implications for our lives, not just two in our grand scheme of life, but two that I can name for us today as application points. First, there is an upside down nature to our work. Jesus' posture is not primarily about what is your work, but how, how do you work? Uh, you, you see his comparison in verse 25. He says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord it over them and, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Uh, Jesus isn't implying that no Christians should be in a place of authority, but rather what is your posture in your authority? This is what he's getting at. These, these other types of leaders, they lord it over. Uh, they oppress. Uh, th they use their power to hold you back. But Jesus asks us to assess our own life. Uh, do we run companies? Do we, do we operate on boards or organizations uh, with what Adam Grant called a giver posture? 
Uh, do, we, do we work for the good of the company and the good of others in the company or for what the company will give me? Is our primary motivation uh, how we will use our power to, to drive up our bonus or is our primary motivation how others experience me that work with me? Uh, Am I concerned about those I work with and and how I help them flourish? Second, there's an upside down nature to our relationships. Uh, If you're married, if you're married in the room, I don't know if you have this scoreboard behind your bed, uh, but it exists in the Groff household. It's it's actually an imaginary scoreboard. It's a scoreboard that exists um, only in my head. And this board was very present uh, when we had very, very small kids and we were up in all hours of the night. But, but even nowadays, we, we still find ourselves getting up in the middle of the night to deal with various kids with various issues. And if I find myself having to get up to deal with an issue at two in the morning with one of our kids, the second my feet hit the floor to go deal with that issue, I just make a gentle mark on that scoreboard, a little notch on the scoreboard that simply reads this, Tyler won. Rachel zero. And when that board starts to get a little lopsided, I will let Rachel know where we stand. We will go to the board and we will check the score. And I'm quite happy to tell her about all the various tallies that she might have missed all the things that I have done. And here's the question for you this morning. How often do you say, let's go to the board? Let's check the score. How are you lording over others in your relationships? Do your kids see a humility in you? Uh, do, do, do friends or, or, or parents, do they see an upside down nature in you? Or, or is your life lived from this posture? Let's go to the board. Let's check the score. Now, you're probably thinking this, and I'm thinking it even as I'm preaching it. Why is the upside down nature so hard in life? Why is it so hard? Well, that brings us to the second thing we must see. Uh, The seat, the seat that hinders us from a great life. Uh, Look at verse 21. It says this. And Jesus said to her, this mother, what do you want? And she said to him, uh, say that these two sons of mine are to sit uh, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Uh, this mother is probably responding to uh, statements Jesus had made in the previous chapter of Matthew about uh, taking his disciples with him to make a new world. This is what it says there. Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This mother and and her sons believe they are journeying now to Jerusalem where, where, where Jesus is going to make all things new. It's the, the culmination of his great vision And Jesus is going to bring a new world order and there will be seats of honor. And Jesus says here, there'll be, there'll be 12 thrones. There'll be 12 thrones. But in the ancient world, there were three seats, the highest seats of honor, the seat of the king and the seat to the right of the king and the seat to the left of the king. And of course, 
uh, John and James, uh, they have now asked their mom to do their dirty work. They, they, they send mom of all people to Jesus to, to vouch on their behalf. I mean, who's going to say no to mom is what they're thinking. Even Jesus can't say no to mom. But Jesus tells us that this kind of thinking is what will hinder you from a great life. The desire for the seat at all costs. There's something that we, like this mother's request, we're asking Jesus to do for us. There's some seat, there's, there's some pursuit that we're thinking, once I get this, once I get that seat, it will lead to a great life. But what we find is that pursuit, that seat we're searching for ends up hindering us from a great life. It's the, it's the irony of ironies. The, the thing that we are seeking so much is actually sabotaging us. Uh, this is the growing thrust of much scholarship today. Todd Cashin, who is a, a professor at George Mason University, he's taught a lot on the importance of happiness in our lives. And Cashin says, we find ourselves running and living on what he calls the hedonic treadmill, hedonic with, from the word pleasure, that our lives are, are, are lived with this aim pursuit at some seat, uh, some pursuit. And, and we say, well, once I get that, once I get to that place, then I'll have a great life. But Cashin says, we live our lives chasing some seat and we ultimately... It, it makes us find that we are actually running in place. Have you, have you felt that? Uh, the, the, the striving, the, the earning, the, the achieving, the, the never resting, the hurry to get some seat. But it feels like we're just exhausted. And frankly, we find that we are still right where we started, no matter how hard we have worked. Can I be honest with you this morning? There's a section of Orlando known as, quote, the happiest place on earth. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're an annual pass holder. But have you seen the faces of people as they walk by you at Disney? Not the little ones who don't have a care in the world. I'm talking about the people who are actually paying for the trip. Look at those parents' faces. They are in, quote, the happiest place on earth, and they are haggard. They're exhausted. They're tired of the endless walking, tired of the endless spending. All these families who travel from across the country and from around the world to come to the happiest place on earth, only to be met with that the very thing that they are seeking for happiness won't fulfill them. And when they get home, when they get home, there is a final bill waiting to greet them. Viktor Frankl, who was a psychotherapist and spent time in the Nazi concentration camps in the 1900s, shares that the seat that you are striving for, the seat that you're saying, once I get this, then I'll have a great life. He says, that will never satisfy you. This is what he said. Happiness should not, must not, and can never be a goal, but only an outcome. All human striving for happiness in this sense is doomed to failure. If Jesus was to ask you this morning or to ask your mother, whichever works for you, if he was to ask you, what do you want? 
What are you after? What, what, what would you say? What, what's the seat that you are striving for? The seat that you've put all your hopes in? The, the, the desire above all desires, the seat that you said that once I can sit down in that seat, then everything will be okay. Then I'll be happy. Once I get to that seat, then I can feel like I can stop running. But friends, I just ask you, look down at your feet. Do you see it? You're on a treadmill. You're running in place. And this morning, maybe you're finally willing to admit to yourself that you are exhausted from chasing some seat, whatever it is. You're able to see that the seat that you're thinking that is going to give you a great life is just an illusion because you've been saying to yourself, I should be, I should be more earning more than I am. I, I, I should be getting more recognition than I'm getting. If I were earning more, if I was noticed more, if I got my seat, friends, it's a treadmill. Do you see it? Look, look down at your feet. Now I know what happens about now in sermons. You, you you start to assess that whatever that seat is for you, 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 you realize that there's something in your life that's just leaving you exhausted and haggard and unfulfilled, more insecure. And, and, and then you start thinking, you know what? That's right. He, he is right. Jesus is right. I need to stop caring so much about my initiatives. I, caring so much about my agenda, about how my life should go. I, I need to stop that. I'm on a treadmill, for goodness sakes. I need to be a servant like the one in this passage. That's the great life I need. I need to stop caring about the needs of others. I need to get more religion in my life. Maybe that's you this morning. But what we don't see is that the same dark shadow in our soul that taints our desire to the top, to the seat of honor, that same dark shadow taints our desire to the bottom. (laughs) What do I mean? Well, Jonathan Edwards uh, was considered by many to be one of the greatest theologians America has ever produced. And he wrote in his book, The Nature of True Virtue. Edwards said that if you don't believe in the gospel of grace, if, if, if your life is marked and you believe that you're saved by your works, he says that you can never actually do anything in your life for just the beauty of that thing. You've, you've never actually done anything in your life for the beauty of it. You've only done it for what it would give you. You've only, you've only done it for yourself. He said, every time you were a servant, um, every time that you've helped an old lady across the street, you did it to get something to, to earn a merit. I heard a story about a pastor, um, who was, um, they had had Sunday services and, and then he came in Monday morning and, and he noticed in the sanctuary that there were church bulletins everywhere. No one takes the bulletins home. They just, they're just trash across the whole church. And he walks in and he's like, oh man, look at all these church bulletins. So this pastor started going row by row by row through, through the church, picking up all these bulletins. But as he did, he started thinking in his head, you know what? you know what? I'm, I'm doing a pretty good thing here. I mean, I'm the senior pastor of this place and I, I of all people, I'm picking up the bulletins. And when you don't think that dark shadow in your soul could stretch any further, you will surprise even yourself. The pastor's next thought was, man, I sure hope some staff walk by and see me in here doing this. 
Now, I know what some of you are wondering. Tyler, is that you? I could understand why you're thinking that. No, that this was not my story, but this could be my story. Because I know that how far the dark shadow casts. The 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle put it this way. There is something in even our best works, our best works, that desperately needs to be pardoned. In every action, even in seeking to be a servant, we are actually looking for a seat. The seat that we thought once we get that, once we get that great life, everything will be okay. But what we find is it is a prison of our own making. What the British author Malcolm Muggeridge talked about is the tiny dudgeon of the human ego. If we've searched for some seat in our life that we're in pursuit of, once I get that, but we only find we're more exhausted, more unfulfilled, that we're standing on a treadmill. And at the same time, we've poured ourselves out for others, but we've only poured ourselves out to add another notch in the scoreboard. Let's go to the board. Let's count the score. How will we ever get out of the prison of our own making? How will we ever get out of a prison that you and I have actually locked from the inside? How do we get out? Well, that's our final thing we have to see. The way to a great life. The way to a great life. Uh, Look at verse 28. It says this. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What we see in our passage is the way to a great life, but this passage shows us the way out of our bondage, but you might have missed it. Uh, The mistake that we can make, and many of us can do this, is that we see um, in the great life of Jesus, our example. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came in humility. Uh, Jesus came uh, live like him, serve like him, uh, give like him, live like Jesus. But if Jesus primarily is our example, it will not lead to a great life. It just leads to a darker prison where we're either beat down because we just can't cut it. We're falling behind once again, or we're ballooned by pride as we look around at others and we think we're doing a little bit better than everyone else around us. Let's go to the board. Let's count the score. This is what happened in our passage. Uh, We hear about these other disciples, um, and it says in our passage, they became indignant at James and John. They're they're outraged, um, but they're not any better than these other guys. They're just upset because they got outmaneuvered by James and John, outcalculated by them. Friends, if we see Jesus as mainly our example to a great life, it will crush us. The chains will only get heavier. The, The way cannot be that Jesus is primarily our example. He is our example, but he can't primarily be our example, but our passage tells us the way out and it involves the cup. This is what Jesus tells us in verse 22 says this, Jesus answered, you don't know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What is the cup? What what, what is this cup? The cup is throughout the Bible and all redemptive history has been an expression of the suffering that comes with God's wrath against evil, sin, and injustice. That's what the cup is. We've actually find many different passages. Oh, this is just one of them from the book of Isaiah. It says this, 
Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Maybe wake your neighbor if they're asleep right now. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Who have drunk to the dregs the bowl. The dregs are the, the sediment in the ancient world that would exist in the cups. Who have drunk to the dregs the cup of staggering. The image in this passage is... Uh, drinking from the cup of wrath would be like drinking a poison. It, it hints the staggering, the stumbling, the, the overwhelming. Uh, Jesus is telling us someone has to drink the cup. Uh, the cup of God's wrath is his settled and deserved judgment against us. Uh, for all the other places we've turned, for, for whatever seat it is you've been in pursuit of, whatever treadmill you're on, for, for every evening time you've done something good, you're always doing it to put another notch on the scoreboard. But don't you see Jesus being our example doesn't help us. The chains of sin and death continue to be gripped around our ankles. The way to a great life is not through Jesus, the example, but through Jesus, the savior, Jesus, the liberator, Jesus, the redeemer. Isaiah said, we need someone who will drink the cup dry we need someone who would take our place, someone who would, who would set all things right through history. But the one who would drink it dry to the dregs must stagger. They would stagger. Friends, this morning, don't you see that Jesus staggered for you? For you. Uh, listen to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane from Mark 14 as he began to taste the cup. And Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus saw the cup that he was destined to drink and he, he staggered. He, he stumbled before the weight of it, the poison. Friends, this morning, don't you see that Jesus was pulled down to hell so you could be set free? So you could go forth. He, he is the only one who's truly lived a great life and he drank the cup and staggered for you. So that his approval would be your approval. So that's what, what is true of him. His great life would be your great life. I love the way the, the, the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon talked about it. He said it like this. At one tremendous draught of love, Jesus drank damnation dry. He drank damnation dry. So that there was nothing left of all the pangs and the miseries of hell for his people ever to endure. Friends, don't you see the way to a great life is through first admitting that yours is not so great. It's coming to Jesus as your savior, that he died for you, that, that he drank the cup for you. He drank damnation dry. That he gave his life for you, that, that his death became your jailbreak. His life would in your place would be your liberation, your redemption. That's what Jesus was talking about early on as he walked among his followers very early in his ministry. Why did you come? Why are you here? And Jesus shared with those who follow him. This is what he said in the gospel of Luke. He said this, God has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. 
Jesus declares there is freedom for all who would put their trust in him. He's saying, I will break you out. I will set you free. I will get those chains off of you. But like me, you're probably wondering, how do I know I can trust him? How, how do I know that he, how do I know that he can get me out? How do I know he can break me free? Well, it tells us in our passage. It says that he's our ransom. Do you know what the ransom was? Uh, now, it's very different from our modern idea of what we see of, ran of ransom in movies where, um, you know, the ransom always includes bags full of cash and uh, a fully fueled jet to some other country, right? You know, that's what we think when we think of ransom. But in the first century, ransom or lutron in Greek, it was a well-known concept of the payment given to, to set a slave or prisoner free. Uh, there, there was a debt that had to be paid. There was a payment. And, 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 and Jesus is saying to you this morning, there's a ransom and I've paid it. I gave my life for you. I've paid your debt. I've paid your ransom. I'm busting you out of this place. The way to a great life is to see the one who actually truly lived a great life at infinite cost to himself died to save you to redeem you, to set you free, to post your bail. And, and, and knowing that allows you to live free for the care of others with nothing you need to earn anymore. To work simply for the contribution of others at your work rather than some need of, of, of a seat or your name on the wall or some promotion, you're able just to serve and to give away. You're able to care for the needs of others in your life uh, and without having to go to the scoreboard to tally up the score, to show how, how many things you've been doing that maybe haven't been seen, uh, all the dishes that you have put away, all the kids' socks that you have matched, which by the way is the worst chore in all of human history. You are free to serve because you now have a freedom from whatever chains had you. You have a freedom that only Jesus Christ could have purchased and he will lead you home. There's a story about Abraham Lincoln, the, the great president. He went to the slave block where slaves were purchased and he sought to, to buy a young slave girl. And she stood there uh, looking at him and saw him bidding on her. And, and she thought in her head, of course, another white man who will buy me, use me and discard me. It is the tragic and awful story of slavery in our country that we must never forget. Lincoln won the bid. And as he's walking away with her, he, he said to her, young lady, you are free. And she said, what, what does that mean? And he, he said to her, listen, you are free. She, she said to him, does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? He, he said, yes, you can say whatever you want to say. And she said, does that mean I can be whatever I want to be? Lincoln said, yeah, yes, you can, you can be whatever you want to be. 
she said, does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? Lincoln emphatically said, yes, yes, yes. You can now go wherever you want to go. This young girl with, with, with tears streaming down her face simply said, then I guess I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Friends, will you go with him? Will you give your life to him? Will you, will you follow him? He and he alone has purchased your freedom. He and he alone has paid your ransom. He's drunk the cup. He's drunk it dry. And he has declared that his great life is now yours for all eternity. He's busting you out. And nothing, not even hell itself, will stand in his way. The prison door has been flung open for all eternity. Will you go with him? Will you go with him? Let's pray. Well, our Father, we thank you again this morning. The great reminder of Jesus's life that is to be received by grace. That his ransom has broken our chains, whatever those chains are this morning. That he has drank damnation dry for us. The Holy Spirit, would you empower us today and this week? Would you empower us to live in the freedom of the gospel for the good of others? As we seek to serve as Jesus, our Savior, has served us. We pray this in his name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.